Welcome to the Deschooling Dialogues. This podcast is a co-creation between Culture Hack Labs and Cosmos Journal. Culture Hack Labs is a not-for-profit advisory that supports organizations, social movements, and activists to create cultural interventions for systems change. You can find out more at culturehack.io. Post-production is made possible by the dedicated supporters of Cosmos Journal, focused on transformation in harmony with all of life. You can find out more at cosmosjournal.org. And thank you to Radio Kingston for the use of this space today. I'm your host, Alnur Lada. I'm here with Sophie Strand, who's a dear friend, sibling, uh, an inspiration when it comes to weaving words and worlds. She is a writer, a compost heap, a troubadour, an animist, and she's the author of The Flowering Wand, which is out now, and um, Madonna's Secret, which is coming out this summer. Welcome to Deschooling Dialogues. Thank you for being with us and taking the time. Thank you so much for having me and for having my little dog who may vocalize during this. So let's start with just maybe a little bit about the inquiries you're holding now and a little bit about the journey. Hmm, A little bit about the journey. I was raised in a swamp of Theravadan Buddhist monks, rabbis, theologians, um, rescued possums, raccoons, um, (laughs) mountains. Um, My parents write about the history of religion, and they also write about ecology. So I I definitely have a root system in these things, um, and was produced by dinner table conversations that range from eco-anarchism to, you know, the history of Christianity. Um... Today, these days, um, I'm thinking a lot about healing paradigms and how they're helpful and how they also constrict us and foreclose certain possibilities for wellness. Um, And I am looking at my own story with chronic illness and with trauma um, under a different lens, under a more interspecies lens, um, trying to problematize the ways in which I have um, focused on the human when it comes to healing instead of my wider connectivity. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking about right now i know you just finished a book on um (laughs) philanthropy (laughs) composting philanthropy Mm -hmm, kind of against my will yeah um you know i I think a lot about post-capitalism not in a a temporal sense of what comes after this Mm -hmm. existing system but more about what are the enabling conditions to create embodied cultures worth living and i see a lot of parallel between our work in the sense that I often find you go to ecology for your inspiration. Yeah. Like we were talking about pigweed the other yeah, day. Yeah. And you gave me the metaphor of pigweed and I thought, wow, that that that's a post capitalist being, the pigweed. Mm. Maybe you say a little bit about Pigweed for me is so a little context is so my my grandmother was an English rose gardener and she didn't know better and she used um, glyphosate in her garden to Rose Garden, and she died of complications from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is now shown to be directly caused by glyphosate, by Roundup. And posthumously, she was included in the class action suit against them. And I think a lot about, she was the person who I felt closest to. She lived with us as she died. I loved her quite a bit. She was a gardener um, and a lover of plants, completely pagan without knowing that that's what she was. Um, 
And I think about how we are all threaded through with microplastics. We're all drinking water with blood pressure stabilizers and pesticide in it and experiencing autoimmunity and cascading physical glitches that, of course, the environment is also experiencing <laughs> at a much higher degree. And for me, I was thinking, I can't purify myself. I can't put myself into some machine that purifies my blood and fixes me. I need a good metaphor. And so I always think, so in medieval England, there, was, there were cults of saints. And it seemed Christian, but really they were syncretic with much earlier tutelary land deities. So certain plants, certain springs, certain valleys would have healing attributes. And they became conflated with Christian saints so that they could still exist within the oppressive paradigm of colonial Christianity. Um, but they pointed to plants and animals and places that could heal you. So you would pray to a certain saint for a toothache, for a fever, for heartache. And so I've created my own cult of saints, but they're all plants and animals and microbes. And they're the plants and animals and microbes that are, as you said, post-capitalist, ones that are not the master's tools. You know, the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. They're always the dirtiest, most hated beings. And one of those is pigweed. And pigweed is a weed. It's actually indigenous to America, but we treat it like an invasive species because it destroys our monocropping. It'll get into a field. They have these deep tap roots. They're impossible to get rid of without something called flame weeding, where you burn down the entire field. And the best thing is they out genetically outpace pesticides, that they can outpace glyphosate like in one generation in their adaptive mechanism yeah yeah and so they can metabolize the pesticide and learn how to get rid of it immediately and so i have started praying to pigweed to, to teach me how to alchemize these poisons in my own body mm -hmm. so that's that's one but i like calling them post-capitalism like like co-conspirators yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're they're sort of apocalyptic but also post-capitalistic deities yeah do you have one right now? Can you think of one? The the one that comes to mind, and you, you'll probably know the Latin names uh -huh. better than me, probably is not. is the the particular fungi that infects uh, the the ant. Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. <laughs> there you go. See, I, I knew you would. Um, yeah. And what, why I think the metaphor is, is so interesting is that. It doesn't have a body in that sense, right? It can't yeah. get to the top of the tree, but it can infuse the ant's body and become symbiont with the ant. Yeah. And the the research on it is really interesting because they don't know if it's affecting the neurology mm -hmm. of the ant, if it's happening at a strictly neurochemical level, like the ant is high. Yeah. They haven't figured out like what is the mechanism by it's in which way it's doing this. And I think in, in some ways that the kind of post-capitalist post resistance is that in some ways. It's like we have to ride the bodies of, in some ways, more mobile, more superior creatures and, and take root in that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that metaphor too. I oftentimes think of that ant when I think of art, which is good art is never you. It's always using your body and hijacking you to do something that's bigger than you. Mm -hmm. And that that experience is usually terrifying. Mm -hmm. Like, we do not know what that that ant is experiencing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think Merlin Sheldrake says, like, by the time the ant's at the top of the plant, it's a fungus in an ant costume. Yeah. <laughs> which I love. Yeah. You know, how can we become 
fungus in human costumes and trees in human costumes? How can we let ourselves be, be colonized by these right. beings? Right. And and a lot of this comes when, when we're in this kind of line of thinking is yeah. like purpose. Yeah. Right. And I think a lot about in the in the living world. Yeah. How uh, no species mm-hmm. requires purpose or is <laughs> contemplating their yeah. purpose or is navel gazing, and um, the West is obsessed with it, right? And our you know from career counselors to the kind of Fordist procession that moves us towards some kind of vocational job right when you're come out of high school and you get these like seven bad options of like architect (laughs) lawyer doctor banker whatever um and we don't know what we're orienting towards a plant understands photosynthesis yeah It, it has its um teleology if you will intact yeah and we're so rudderless especially in a culture that tells us uh, a kind of materialist reductionist fallacy of acquisition is going to somehow save us yeah. and the only thing we need to do is whatever is required to get us into a relatively hierarchical position to acquire more consume more validate more yeah. the purpose or the, the accumulation I was thinking about accumulation like we want to accumulate as much as possible make as much into our bodies mm-hmm. like and by the extension we're making as much land into places to grow our food our monocrops or our cows and our chickens which are an extension of our own bodies um, but yeah no there's no in, in um, I oftentimes think of these spiders and that always die when they reproduce Mm -hmm. they or they like will 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 jump into the mouths of these giant female spiders and die and you know they they, there were these rare spiders in this um zoo and they were trying trying to get them to reproduce and they were waiting and trying to make sure that the lady spider didn't eat him before she did it and she ate him and everyone despaired because they were the last of their kind and then two weeks later she was pregnant he managed to, as he was dying, do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for me, I was always thinking, like, we think that that's like a, a life wasted. We, 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 you know, we think we have to save, but we right. should. Life has doesn't have a savings account. It spends everything at right. once, right. always. Right. And 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 maybe the transition between these two is that. And I think I told you about my uncle before. We had a little conversation yeah. about him, right? And I remember being like 17 years old and the the school uh, job counselor or whatever yeah. career counselor they call them gave me all this propaganda for Canadian yeah. universities. And I'm like looking at this and my uncle walks in the room and he's like, what are you doing? And I said, <laughs> well, you know, I had to pick what university yeah. I want to go to. And then he just sort of laughed and he's like, you've become so colonized. And then his line was, your life is a consequence of your prayer. Beautiful. Your life is the consequence of your prayer. You don't like your optionalities. You don't like your choice set. Like, go to your altar. Go to zikr, which is like Arabic mantra. Like, refine your prayer, and then you can negotiate again. And it's sort of, uh, it it just recalibrated the way I was approaching this, like, limited choice set of what I could do and what my purpose was. And and even the idea of prayer, he's like, there is no purpose. There's only prayer. And you're in Mm. dialogue with this animate world. And um, and it also there, there's like a a kind of pathway also in in death to this because uh, I, I think death phobia yeah is driving most of our motivations at a civilizational level 
right? Like the, well, it's obvious in some in when we look at healthcare, yeah. for example, or end of life care, palliative yeah. care, and Elon Musk wanting to go to Mars and uploading our consciousness into yeah. the AI and all of that. But also at like a at a daily kind of quotidian way, uh, our like purpose and death are so entwined. Well, because I think. It's interesting. I was just thinking of this great line from my favorite Linda Hogan poem, which is to enter life, be food. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the most terrifying thing is to really realize what our purpose is, which is to be food, mm-hmm. to become food, to make ourselves edible. How do we make ourselves edible? <laughs> it's not about being a doctor or, or, or doing anything. It's about making sure that at the end of our lives, we could be eaten. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very terrifying. That's so closely wedded, wedded to mm-hmm. death. Um, I oftentimes think that our fear of death is also closely linked to our weird relationships to food webs. Mm. That we food webs are created by waste, by delicately plugging your waste into another being's appetite. That you know that's how the nitrogen in the salmon makes it all the way into the rivers, then into the bears' bodies from out in the ocean. That like the ocean is tied in deep, deep miles into the land by these salmon and by their waste decaying and being eaten by bears and then the bears pooping on the shore of these rivers. And we don't know how to make our waste edible anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't know how to make our death edible. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I sometimes think that my purpose in life is just really simple. It's like very material. Mm -hmm. How do I make sure that at the end of my life I can be eaten? Mm Mm-hmm. And and there might also be like an esoteric layer to this. Oh, yeah. I, I was thinking of um, Genevieve Sophia Dow, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and she said uh, on on multiple occasions, I try to cultivate my diet so I'm erotically attractive to gods, beautiful, and to deities. It's like yeah. um, it's, it's a very Taoist conception of like you cultivate your chi in a certain way that the the these kind of more than human uh, and these multi-dimensional beings are attracted to you. And also, I mean, I oftentimes say to people, you, we have to realize that we are not just speaking with our mouths. We're speaking with our whole bodies to other beings. So the first way we usually speak to other beings is with our smell. And we have forgotten how we are very loud with our smell and unintentional. And the truth is that we're eating processed food, we're covering ourselves in synthetic chemicals, and then we're quietly going into the forest. <laughs> it's a very loud, unintentional entrance if you're smelling like that like i oftentimes think the the first way we can key into how we're communicating with these other animate forces is is through smell Mm -hmm. like can we learn to smell better can we learn to speak better with our whole bodies which happens through diet yeah it does and you know in this Taoist sense it happens through spiritual practice um the, this idea of death, I was also thinking uh, on something you said with, in our conversation with V, um, mm-hmm. which, which is we're not children of the garden, we're children of the crater. Yeah. And what's come to me, and I've had discussions around this um, in other contexts, is 99.9% of every species that's ever existed on the planet it's is gone. no longer with us. Yeah. So the... You know, the the scientific analysis is 10 million species, but people say it's mm-hmm. more like 60. Yeah. But the, whatever it is, this kind of range of 10 to 60 million species that are alive on the planet are only less than 0.01% of all life that's ever lived. Yeah. And so maybe the point is not perpetual existence, but to die well. Yeah. 
it's actually extinction. That's what life moves towards. Or combining bodies. I mean, I oftentimes think that the most biological novelty are the moments when two species are like, we're done. Let's just combine. Let's burn the bridge to our old body behind us. Mm-hmm. You know, the two simple um, I, prokaryotes fusing to create eukaryotic life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, botched cannibalism mm-hmm. created our bodies. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe we're also, maybe right now we're being asked to jump into other bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does seem like death. I mean, it probably feels like death. It's mm-hmm. also, you know, it's like the, it's like the fungus and the ant. Mm-hmm. It's... And we also don't know what we're becoming. We don't. Like we're still just. We we think evolutionary evolution is some like stopped. finite force, yeah, right? I know. That it's like uh, has a destination, uh, and like we have no idea. We're still navigating just verticality, even. I know, and we don't do it well. I mean, Thomas Halliday, this great paleontologist, says something that is like my prayer: "It's nature is not nostalgic. Mm-hmm. It's creative." It will put new things together every day to keep life moving. It's not devoted to one species. You know, I always say matter is not species monogamous. <laughs> it, it, it's promiscuous. Mm-hmm, I love that. Um, it moves between bodies and it changes bodies to keep moving. Um, yeah. I hope that whatever happens, I contribute to, you know, as the commons of the general enlivenment to summon Andreas Weber. Um, I hope that's how you say our friend's name. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like I hope I can like pay forward my matter to the general aliveness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, sort of death, dying, extinction, mm-hmm. uh, eukaryotic life, the this sort of symbiont, holobiont, yeah. uh, cyborg beings that we're becoming in yeah. some ways... Um, what is your sense on the directionality? What is my sense on the directionality? My sense of the directionality is I am an ant on a very big earth, and I have no sense of the direction. I just hope that I will make myself a door- doorway through which matter can flow without mm-hmm. being blocked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and we were talking with V earlier about the ones who walk away from Omelas, which is this utopia that is justified and kept in place by the abuse of one child. This is the Ursula Le Guin Ursula short Le Guin story. Ursula Le story. And the, the, the direction is not what matters. The, the important thing is to walk away. And so I, I think what's the direction we're moving in? Is it towards complete extinction? Is it towards some weird kind of digital symbiocene? Is it towards the grid going down? I don't know. All I know is that I want to walk away from Omelas. And I hope that I can join hands with other beings, be they dogs or plants or trees or friends like you, as we choose to walk away. I, so the, what direction are we moving in? I hope we are moving away from Omelas. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and the, as we sort of, uh, I guess in some ways, walk towards the event horizon, whatever's <laughs> yeah. coming. Uh-huh. You know, uh, Terence McKenna always used to say um, that we are in parking orbit of this event horizon. <laughs> yeah. Like we, we, we sense it. Uh, uh-huh. it's, it's around the corner. And it, and it feels like on one level there's this digitization yeah. that's happening and yeah. crypto wallets to yeah. vaccine passports that were yeah. like happening in one direction. And then in the other, uh, you almost have to choose like cyborg or free people. I know. Yeah. It's, it's a, I mean, the one thing I think about, and I'm interested to hear where you're leaning right now. 
is um, I do think that we we treat this technology like it is a god, and we forget that it's made of very fragile materials and materials that depend on our supply chains and our infrastructure holding. Like most of our technology depends on one factory um, in Taiwan making these computer chips and our relationship with Taiwan being okay. You know, I sometimes think that we're we're in a kind of weird like medieval theological relationship to technology that doesn't actually admit that it's fragile and it needs a lot of parts still working. I think it's too fragile to be our future personally. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel? Yeah, I, all this talk about um, AI singularity, I, <laughs> I find on, on some levels quite ridiculous, because I'm mm -hmm. like, this requires the perpetual mining of lithium right? from Bolivia. That's what I was Coltan thinking. Coltan yeah. and cobalt from West Africa. Like, it's, it's not, that's not going to happen. And no. it also requires huge amounts of satellites in the air, right? and a global energy grid, and, you know, we're mitigating for a three-degree rise in temperature by mid-century, which, you know, is 40% biodiversity loss. That's like 40% of all life not being here, right? Yeah. Like, you have no idea what's going to happen to the ecosystem and yeah. the biome and the web yeah. of life. And um, it's also correlated with the 10 to 20 meter sea level rise, which means like, you know... There's no way these things th are going to keep in place. Like that. And then the other aspect of this is also that the belief that you could get consciousness from non-consciousness <laughs> makes no sense to me, right? Like, neuroscience has spent 30 years trying to figure yeah. out the hard problem of consciousness. Yeah. And and the reason it's a hard problem of consciousness is their logic is circular. Yep. So they're like, we have this, you know... Black box with this, this homunculus inside of it that's operating this other homunculus. Yeah. That's basically yeah. where they got to. And, they're, and, and the analysis, it's epiphenomenal, yeah. right? That... Mm. Um, it's an emergent phenomena that mm. mind, that consciousness has just emerged from this machine yeah. called the brain. And it's like, well, what if, and, and this is also related to nostalgia, yeah. right? Because the human neocortex is the most evolved thing. And what will happen if the universe doesn't yeah. have it? And it's like, consciousness is distributed. Distributed, it's, yeah. it's everywhere. It's in everything. And if you, if that was your starting place, if we had a more kind of idealistic, panpsychic, starting place you wouldn't have the hard problem of consciousness yeah. and you also wouldn't have the fallacy that somehow ai consciousness is going to be created from nothing when we have we don't even know how consciousness in the human brain works how are we now going to bestow <laughs> that godlike ability on ones and zeros and digital machinery i also i think it's really missing i'm i'm deeply a a, a kind of new materialist pantheist animist sensibility and my sense is that yeah these machines and bots are sentient, but they're sentient because they're made from material that's sentient. And they're not sentient because we've created some neural network. They're sentient because matter is bumptious and agential in ways that we cannot control and conceive of. And one thing I am not worried about, but very aware of is I think that technology is haunted. I think a lot about how a lot of medicine depends on Nazi experiments that have just dropped out of the footnotes. <laughs> and I think, can you can you separate the means from the ends? Mm -hmm. What does it mean that most of our medical science is done from experimenting on animals? You know, we think about quantum entanglement. We think about, you know, the observer always affects the outcome. You know, I, I always think that when you kill one being... You know, that affects the outcome. Mm -hmm. What does it mean that our medicine is based on this erasure, mm -hmm. you know, this elision? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think a lot about <clears throat> how the AI we're creating 
is haunted with materiality, with minerals and, 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 and stuff that's been extracted from the earth. What does that material want? That's the consciousness we're talking about right. and not acknowledging. Right. Uh, the, there's the Donna Haraway line where she yeah. says, it matters what matter there's, we matter matter with. Yes, yes. It matters what stories we use to tell other stories. What ties we tie knots. Yeah. 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 Um, so as this focus of this conversation yeah. is on, on de-schooling, yeah. and we've, we, I, I love that we have our nonlinear <laughs> weaving yeah. and... Uh, We've talked everything from uh, purpose to the body to AI. Um, what do we need to unlearn as a culture in order to be good compost, in order to be usefulness, mm. useful to the aliveness of matter? Well, I want to hear your answer. I think the thing that I'm pretty focused on is we need to unlearn the atomized self. Mm -hmm. We need to unlearn the sense that there is an individual. We only come into being through interface and through relationship. Healing doesn't happen in one body. It happens in a meshwork of bodies. Um, you know, trauma doesn't come into being through perpetrator and victim. It comes into being through complicated systems of complicity. Um, so I think for me, the thing I would like to unlearn is this sense that I am a, a self with boundaries that should be defended. <laughs> um, I need to get used to an idea that I am leaky and that avails me of pollution and harm, but also of more nourishment and feral um, ways of surviving than I could ever have expected. What, what do you think we're, we need to unlearn right now? Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you. I, I I think at the at the highest level, when we try to go to the root and the root and the root, yeah. and we can say the root cause is neoliberalism or yeah. um, the Neolithic revolution and I the know, city state. Like, and, try and find that. And, and you just try to historically and anthropologically go back, and what it comes to me comes to for me is really the illusion of separation. Yeah, and and then this is why I love this definition from Chief Ninawa mm -hmm. that. Colonialism, his definition of colonialism and whiteness is the illusion of separation mm. as a neurological, cultural impairment. Mm. That we've internalized this belief so deeply that it affects our very ontology. Yeah. And ontology being the philosophy of being. Um, and sometimes it's interpreted as vision, like the, literally the way we see the world. right? And so if my gaze is structured in a way that everything is separate and materialist and reductionist and I'm therefore entitled to manipulate yeah. as I want, I think that becomes the root of so many of our societal illnesses. Yeah. And the, the belief that we're separate from other beings also requires a deep numbing and anesthesia of the body and the soul and the mind and the heart complex. Because how could you treat another being in that way or accept the living conditions of other human beings or the widespread destruction of the ecology unless the aspects of you that know they're not separate are put to sleep. Exactly. I mean, when you realize that all of these arrows you're shooting are going into your own breast, you're going to feel a lot of pain. I mean, the thing I think about a lot is there's a, a rather precious take on ecological embodiment right now. 
that it's about like kind of like covering yourself in olive oil and like sluicing yourself with the dirt. It's just it's just that you know we need to go out and participate in nature. And but the truth is that the threshold you have to cross is that when you it's like when your foot has been asleep and it comes back awake, that hurts. It prickles when you realize that you've been you know, hurting yourself, your extended body for such mm-hmm. a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us right now are navigating that pain of, of waking up from the numbness. Mm-hmm. Completely. And that, and that part of me that is empathic and connected and in the non-separate state, those are the best aspects of me. Yeah. And for them to be amputated yeah. and to be colonized in that way means that I'm not fully available to, to life itself. And yeah. so I'm in this active practice of how do I integrate these various ignored, amputated aspects of myself to be in the state of non-separation. And I, and again, I don't think it's an arrival place, no. right? I, yeah. I, I, it, but I, I'm committed to that journey or like yeah. what, what, whatever it takes. And the, the feelings that, and the emotional experiences that come with experiences of non-duality and non-separation are much more interesting to me than any material comfort that stems from the illusion of my separate beingness. Yeah. I mean, I loved the distinction you made earlier between the destination and the process. We're so focused on the destination, we forgot how to keep moving. (laughs) Um, You know, I always think that certainty is a bad flotation device Mm -hmm. and it keeps you from learning how to swim and the truth is you just need to learn to swim, to move your muscles, mm-hmm. um, rather than depending on some kind of faulty, false dualism or, mm-hmm. or set of controls. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How can we learn to just be in, in the process without trying to get anywhere? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's practice, right? There's yeah. like, a, And there's a constant orientation that's required to, to be like, oh, I'm attempting to get somewhere. Yeah. No, and I, yeah, you never get sober from it. Yeah. I think that's the thing that I'm realizing right now is like any moment I think I'm sober from the culture, I'm the drunkest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that in fact, it, it saying you're sober is is a good sign that you're pretty drunk. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I th- I think I'm just constantly realizing like I'm an alcoholic. Like yeah. you know, you, you're never not an alcoholic in a in a twelve step program. Yeah, you're always an addict. And I think that's the thing is like I'm an addict of this culture, yeah. and I need to be actively aware of that and investigating how it inflects every single one of my decisions like as an addict you can think you're like oh i'm just going to visit a friend on this street like (laughs) i just love seeing that friend i mean it is next to my old drug dealer like you know you're really good at hiding things from yourself and so i think like 12 step work is actually sometimes like a really good way of thinking about Uh how we're addicted to the culture yeah and it it keeps you humble yeah there was a line given to me by a plant much smarter than me and uh (laughs) she said yeah Ignorance mm-hmm. is the seed of all ontology. <laughs> and I asked her to repeat herself, and she mm-hmm. said, Ignorance is the seed of all ontology. Mm. That if you could just even try to grasp the consequences of your ignorance, yeah. that becomes the seed of the way you see the world. Yeah. Because it's completely shaped by your ignorance. And then the next logical step would be that humility is the midwife to wisdom. Mm. And there's something very humble about uh, walking around the world acknowledging mm-hmm. that um, you're never sober. Never sober. That I'm an addict to this culture. Yeah. I, I, I think that's my big work these days is just seeing the moments when I begin to slide. 
And I, I think I think that's always a, a big moment in, in an addict's life is realizing the moments when your behavior begins to slant downhill. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can all help each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I do think that's why group work is really important in confronting this. We can't do it alone. Yeah. Um, yeah. We should do it in conversation. Yeah. That's a beautiful way to end or begin and <laughs> yeah. just always be in the middle. And yeah, and yeah we stay in the middle. Um, thank you so much, Sophie. Thanks thank for you. spending the time. And it's good to do it in your hometown. Yeah, it feels really special. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah, we see each other soon. Thank you.